This is my first visit to Templeton. I felt right at home driving in yesterday. Looks like a big Napa Valley. Really does. Lots of nice little rolling hills. We're starting to be golden. And lots of vineyards. You do know that the skin of grapes is very cardiovascularly protective. Of course, in Napa Valley, the industry says that drinking red wine is good for your heart. Well, it's the resveratrol in the grape skins. So I just go straight for the grape skins and avoid peeling them. I was invited out to dinner the other day and there was this beautiful grapes in this big bowl and every one of them was peeled. I thought, oh dear, there goes my resveratrol. <laughs> All right. So, yes, I started my career at Loma Linda University. Any graduates from Loma Linda here? Oh, good, a few. And uh, it was a great school set me up to really be interested in healthcare. And as the years went by, I went back to school several times. Sometimes we're slow learners. And now my whole career is being devoted to what's the simplest, easiest way that we can do what we know. Some people don't even know And that's the beauty of being able to share. But lots of us know and don't do. So that's what I've been working on for the last, mm, since March of 2014. And it's been a wonderful journey. And as I fly around the world and lecture about brain function, because everything starts in the brain, period, People often say, well, is that scriptural? And that's when I tell people that I'm a preacher's kid. Come on. If I can't do some correlations here, we're in trouble. Any preacher's kids out there? Or teacher's kids? (laughs) Well, you know what that's like. The rest of you don't. You just give us a bad time. I don't care how big my father's church was. I remember one in particular when I was just an emerging teenager. I picture that as being a tadpole and finally getting some legs and hopping up on the bank. Every one of those 400 people knew exactly how the preacher's daughter should behave. And they were very willing to tell me. The problem is they each had a different opinion. And you can't meet expectations for 400 people. And preacher's kids have a bad rap. They have a bad rap of just dumping it all and saying, I'm done with church. Doesn't mean they're done with God. But it means they're sometimes done with church. I think we need to take a look at that because... Well-meaning, perhaps, but very unenlightened individuals sometimes make the road very hard for preachers and teachers' kids. And that's a pity. So, this morning, what I want to do is talk about seven 
components of what I call a brain-friendly lifestyle. And actually that turned into the Longevity Lifestyle Matters program. Because somebody asked me, as I mentioned, does this align with scripture? And I thought, well, if a preacher's kid can't find some scripture, we're really in trouble. So that's when I seriously started correlating what brain function research tells us and can I find something in scripture that aligns with that. And the bottom line for me is this. Scripture tells us what to do, period. This is what you need to do. But I don't think John and Luke and Peter and Mark and a bunch of those others, Matthew included, had any brain scan research to tell them the reason that we're advised to do things. And that's what's so marvelous about living in the age when we've got brain scan research because it tells us the reason for things. And I always wanted to know the reason. You know, there's some things I'm certainly willing to take by faith. You need to do this. There's others I go, okay, but help me find a reason because if I've got a reason, I'm much more likely to maintain the program. So as you probably know, it's all through the, the news media. This is the age of the brain. You know, the last decade of the last century. I love saying that. When you were little, those of you who are over 16, or probably 20 or 30, did you ever think about you were going to be hopefully living across a century mark? I didn't. And all of a sudden, it's 2000, and I go, wow, I'm moving from one century into the next. Enjoyed that. Well, that, the last 10 years of the last century were called the decade of the brain. And then we started getting all this marvelous brain scan research, and this is the age of the brain. You know, before we got these kinds of brain imaging research modalities, what we knew about the brain, starting way back with Hippocrates, and no, I didn't know him personally, but he did a lot of amazing uh, correlations with brain function. I don't know how he figured that out. He must have stolen a body from a cemetery somewhere and looked at the brain, because I'm not sure how else you would know that there were four chunks of cerebral tissue. There still are. So the only thing we knew about the brain really was look at it on an autopsy, crack the skull, take the brain out, put it on a meat slicer, literally slice it, come out with little paper-thin slices of brains, and then you lay it out on a light table and you look at it with the microscope. And we learned a lot about the brain. Did nothing for the person whose brain was on the light table. Or we'd do large sample surveys, questionnaires of people, and try to correlate this group has similar answers, this group has similar answers. And to some degree, that was the basis for Andrews University Temperament Inventory, you know, based on those four chunks. They even called them what Hippocrates called them, choleric, sanguine, melancholy, 
phlegmatic. Amazing. But that only got us so far. And then we got brain scans. And you can see the brain functioning while the person's still alive. Such a deal. Because then it allows them to make changes in their lives if it would be helpful. So here's the bottom line. Your brain can only do what it thinks it can do. And as Henry Ford said, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And the way your brain knows what it can do is because you tell it what it can do. But you can't tell it what it can do until you know that yourself. So let's go through these seven that I've picked out this morning of a brain-friendly lifestyle and see how they correlate with scripture. Start with prayer. Prayer in the brain. It's amazing that some agnostics that I talk to and many brain function researchers are agnostic. They say there's going to be a higher power up there somewhere because the brain is the most complex organ in the known universe, not just on the planet. But we don't know what that being looks like. And they pray, which is very interesting. Recent study in the United States said about three quarters of Americans pray for the health of others. That's doubled in the last 20 years. So church attendance is falling. Hmm. But prayer is not falling, it's raising, rising. So what do we know about prayer in the brain? Well, here's a cutaway of the brain, and the brain would be facing this way, and so right here, that rounded part, is the prefrontal cortex, right behind your forehead, and that's why it's so important to take care of your head, because this is where all the executive functions are. Wear a helmet. Refuse to engage in sports and activities that are at high risk for doing something to your brain. You know the research out there about people who've been playing football for years. Hmm, that's pretty discouraging. So right behind the forehead is the prefrontal cortex, and that's where working memory is. So studies have shown that personal meditative prayer... There's all kinds of prayer. And scientists know that it works. They can't tell you how it works. They just know that even a lead-lined room can't stop prayer. But we don't know how it works. It just works. Pondering, meditating, thinking about spiritual things, and listening for impressions give you the greatest benefit. So it's a little bit like forgiveness. You don't forgive for the person who you think did you dirt. If you went to them and said, I forgive you, half of them would look at you and say, for what? They don't think they did anything, or if they did, they don't even remember it. Prayer is for you. And sometimes I do a whole session on forgiveness and prayer, but especially, I was talking about forgiveness, Forgiveness is for you. It's for what it does for you. And it's amazing what it'll do for your life and your brain. 
Well, I think prayer is a little bit like that. You pray for other people, that's wonderful. But prayer is for you and what it does for the brain. And what does it do? It increases the flow of blood, not only to that frontal part of the brain, but to the temporal lobes on each side and the two parietal lobes in the back and the whole limbic system in the middle that has everything to do with emotional impulses and phobias and addictive behaviors. It decreases metabolic activity. That's excellent. It means your brain is purring along with less energy expenditure. And that tends to help it last longer. And in some cases, it's been shown to trigger something called deafferentation, pain relief. And researchers have figured out that the pain relief is because the sensation of pain just doesn't even seem to get up to the brain to register. And all of that from prayer. These are examples of two brain scans. Dr. Newberg, who is a neurotheologian research scientist who's studying the impact of prayer, religious activities on the brain. The one on the left is just a regular brain scan. And you can see there are spots of activity going on in that brain. And the one on the right is a scan taken while the person is doing meditative prayer. And look up there at the top. Do you see that big red splotch on the left? That's the prefrontal cortex that we were just talking about. And prayer just increases the activity in that part of the brain. Also increases a little bit down on the left in the temporal lobe. And the conclusion is prayer, if done regularly for at least 12 minutes a day, that's nothing, may slow the age-related decline of the frontal lobes which prevent shrinkage. Now here's something you may not want to hear, but I'm telling you anyway. They've done this with people in multiple religions. Doesn't matter what religion. If you're praying, you get the same result to your brain. I think it behooves people to get a little less judgmental about how and when people are praying, because it doesn't matter. Praying is good for your brain, too. As you think in your heart, so are you. I had trouble with this as a teenager. I remember my father, the preacher, telling me to pray without ceasing. Here's the problem. How are you taught to pray? On your knees, number one. What next? Fold your hands. What next? Close your eyes. What next? Bow your head and don't move. <laughs> I looked at my father and I said, well, you want me to practice an hour a day on the piano and an hour a day on the vibra harp. I can't do either of those while I'm praying. What does this mean? I don't remember what I answer he gave me, but I came away with a clear understanding I was supposed to do both. 
Oh, well. And then when I was talking to a Bible teacher and asked about this verse, as you think in your heart, what does that mean? The well-meaning Bible teacher says, well, you know, those poor guys who wrote the scripture were fishermen. They had no PhDs, no MDs, no DDSs. Just substitute as you think in your mind, so are you. He was wrong. As you think in your heart, so are you. And this is what the heart math solution researchers are saying. Read this paragraph with me. Reading aloud 10 minutes a day is an anti-aging strategy. How many of you read aloud 10 minutes a day? Three? Four? Thank heavens. Where was your hand a minute ago? Read out loud 10 minutes a day, anti-aging strategies. PET scans show a huge difference in the brain when you're reading silently versus reading aloud. Don't have to go to the doctor, no prescription. Don't, because it costs you anything, just read aloud. Some of you, I'm sure, remember me telling you at camp meeting that I was in another country. we just gotten this research. Remember that, uh, remember the PET scans? Okay. So imagine on the left, those four chunks of tissue. So if you drew a line top to bottom and then across in the middle, you'd have those four chunks. So they were doing a positron emission tomography study. They asked the, uh, the person in the PET scan camera to just read a paragraph silently aloud to them, to himself. He did. So there were four little red dots if you will, one in each of those four. Then one of the researchers, who wasn't part of the study, said, I wonder what would happen if he read it out loud. So he said, why don't you read that paragraph again and this time read it out loud. Well, 80%, 80, 80 of the brain tissue in those four chunks just came alive. It's a real stimulating, challenging, uh, good for the brain effort. So I was talking about this in another country and I said, you need to read aloud 10 minutes a day. And a lady put up her hand, said, uh, I live alone. I smiled and kept going. What does that have to do with anything my brain said? Pretty soon she goes, I live alone. So I stopped and I said, what do you want me to know about the fact that you live alone? Well, she said, you told me to read aloud 10 minutes a day. I said, I did. But she said, I live alone. And I said, and your point would be? She goes, I'd be embarrassed to read aloud. I said, I thought you just told me you lived alone. Embarrassment's a choice. Don't go there. Oh, she said, I, I know I'd be embarrassed. Well, what can you do? So I was thinking, and I said, do you have a pet? She said, yes, I do. I have a beautiful, great, big Himalayan cat. I said, fabulous. Pick that creature up, plump it in a chair, and uh, read to the cat. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. 
<laughs> she says, but I don't think the cat would understand what I was reading. <laughs> Read aloud, I don't care how you do it. Okay, so read aloud with me that second paragraph. The heart has its own independent nervous system with at least 40,000 neurons, as many as are found in various subcortical sections of the brain. There is a two-way nervous system relay between the brain and the heart. The neurons in your heart look identical to the neurons in your brain. Use the same kind of neurotrophic food, talk to each other in the same way. You do think with your heart. But it's a subconscious organ, so you don't consciously know what your heart is telling you until you give it a few minutes to move up to the brain, and then the brain can tell you consciously what you're thinking about, and you often just think you're thinking with your brain. You are in a sense, but it's uh, decoding for you what you are thinking with your heart. I think it's marvelous. Researchers believe now that your IQ is related to your brain neurons, but your EQ, emotional intelligence, is related to your heart. And when you look at your success formula, IQ plus EQ equals SQ, 80% of your success is what you're doing with your emotional intelligence, your heart intelligence. And it's not just the heart. I thought I'd throw this in because for some people, they're absolutely staggered just to know there are neurons in your heart. But that's not all. The enteric nervous system, your whole GI tract from top to bottom, is filled with millions of neurons and perhaps as many as are in the spinal cord. And now some are saying that you've got as many neurons in your gut as you do in your brain. You are thinking with your gastrointestinal system all the time. So what are you putting in that poor little system that's going to impact your thinking? And if that doesn't take you right back to the first research project that we know of in the Bible with Daniel and his three friends, I don't know what does. They were very careful what they put in their gastrointestinal system. And within 10 days, they were thinking more clearly than all the other people in the court. And within three years... The king personally interviewed them, and they were head and shoulders above the people who were not so careful about what they were putting in their gut. And that's because it's filled with neurons. It also contains, and some of you may find this interesting, 90% of all the serotonin that's in your brain and body. And as you may remember, serotonin is a really, really important brain substance that has everything to do with how you sleep, and it has everything to do with whether or not you can avoid being depressed. And it contains half of all the dopamine in your body. And dopamine is the feel-better chemical involved with every addictive behavior we've ever studied. Half of all the dopamine's in your gut. And it's now being, not the dopamine, the enteric system is being called the second brain 
because it may have as many neurons and more of some of these neurotransmitter substances even than your brain. Irritable bowel syndrome, I'm sure you've heard of that. It's pretty ugly or can be. They're now starting to call that an enteric neuropathy, meaning it has to do with your gut. But what it mostly seems to have to do with is the fact that your neurons in your GI tract aren't working optimally. And once we know that, you can do almost everything about what you think. So that aligns with scripture because you think with your brain, your heart, your gut, any place you got neurons. So it matters what you think about, what you eat and drink, and what you do. There's increasing research about this. One of, that, uh, one of those pieces, you know that the vagus nerve is a huge nerve that connects the stomach, the GI system with the brain. And they've linked that to inflammation when parents argue and fight. It triggers the vagus nerve. And it upsets the children. Duh. Mentally, emotionally, in terms of their gut, diarrhea, constipation, you name it. And uh, that's really unfortunate. Brain and happiness. Amplified Bible. A happy heart is good medicine and a cheerful mind works healing. We could spend the whole day just on that. And I'll tell you right up front, I am really serious about life. But I don't take any of it very seriously. Meaning, if you can laugh at yourself, you carry with you an unending supply of triggers for a happy heart. Because we are such <clears throat> amazing creatures. Humor and laughter are good for both the brain and the immune system. Reduces stress hormones and pouring out stress hormones, especially when you don't need them, are lethal for the immune system. And it increases levels of some of the specific globulins and messengers that fight against viruses. Doesn't mean that you can avoid absolutely everything. It means that studies show about 85% of everything you might catch is probably within the healing pre-programming of your brain and immune system. So that aligns. And here's the research. You need a minimum of 30 mirthful laughters a day. And after the last two questions, I'm not going to ask how many of you get 30 a day. I will tell you that in the United States, large sample studies, somewhere around 15 is the average. And people who are very happy, often very healthy, and very long-lived tend to laugh somewhere between 100 and 400 times a day. So with that average, you can know there's a lot that are not laughing. And I lecture in many churches around the world, many different denominations, and I'm here to tell you, some of those people look like they're the saddest people on the planet. 
Life is hard, and then you die. And if you're trying to encourage somebody to get on board with health and spirituality, and they look at a person that looks like they're on their long walk down to the execution room, that's going to make them want what you want? Give me a break. Laughter enhances communications between the two hemispheres. Helps with learning, storage of data, retrieval of information. Aids digestion. Hmm. Back to the enteric nervous system. Uh, Certainly can help avoid constipation. A woman said to me the other day, you know, I was constipated most of my life until I got a divorce. And all of a sudden I'm not constipated. That's real stories. She said, I don't know what it's all about. I said, well, how much are you laughing now? She said, every day with complete relief. I said, there you go. (laughs) Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? But worry and anxiety are endemic. And that's the whole thing about terrorism. They just want to terrify you so that your brain downshifts and you can't think clearly. And then it's easier for you to be brainwashed, to be frightened into doing certain things. So worry and anxiety are both forms of fear, four main core emotions, the only ones I talk about, because they're the only ones that are, those four can be seen on the face of the fetus during pregnancy when you do scans depending on what's happening to the mother. They are joy, anger, fear, and sadness. And worry and anxiety are forms of fear. What they do is focus the brain's energy and attention not in that third layer of the brain where we have conscious thought and all those executive functions. They focus it down either into the second layer where you develop phobias, or down into the very first layer where you have all the stress reactions. And that's the main problem with worry and anxiety. And unless the brain needs medication because something's totally out of balance, worry and anxiety are a choice. So that aligns because in Philippians, never worry about anything. I said that at a seminar recently, and two people took me to task. There's certainly some things that we should worry about. Our salvation, for example. I said, really? Tell me how worrying and being anxious about whether or not you're part of the family of God is going to make you part of the family of God. I don't know. Well, it isn't. It never solves anything. Again, it downshifts the brain so that you reduce your ability to brainstorm, to think clearly, to problem solve, and you trigger the stress response. So everybody, I think, needs a couple of strategies. The minute you feel fear, you just look around. Is there, am I in any danger? And if I am, what can I do to take care of it? But about 90% of worry and anxiety, a form of fear, has nothing to do with real danger. 
It has to do with what you learned growing up. I'm not good enough. I'm not tall enough. I never grew up tall enough to even reach my own head. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. You know, I'm not lovable enough. That's where the worry and anxiety comes from. You can do something about that. When you get that every brain on the planet is different, you can't compare apples and oranges except to say they're both fruits. Well, you can't compare brains except to say they're all human. So it doesn't matter what someone else is doing. What's your gift? You've got one, at least one. And are you using it? So I have two strategies. When I begin to feel a little fear and anxiety, and occasionally that happens. The other day I was asked to do a seminar for 250 psychiatrists getting them ready for their boards. And I'm thinking, every one of them is an MD. I only have two PhDs. How can I do this? And then I started laughing because it's so ridiculous. You know, you don't, you don't learn in medical school this new brain function stuff because they didn't know it when you went there. So if you're not keeping up, you're behind the eight ball already. So I figured I could do this. So what I did was bring 250 little, you know, rubber squeezy brains. Because we know that males need to move in general to learn far more than females. I mean, I'd tell you, any of you, but males especially, if you begin to get sleepy, it's got nothing to do with me. It's got to do with you're not moving enough. So get up. But if I tell people, not sometimes they get nervous. <laughs> get up in church? Yeah. In Christ's time, there were no chairs. Everybody stood. <laughs> Kept him awake. Probably packed in so closely, if they did start to fall asleep, they'd lean against somebody. So I brought them little squeezy brains. Because if they sit there and squeeze something, that's enough activity for most of them to keep them tuned in. This, unfortunately, I made an error in judgment. I said, um, I brought each of you a brain today. That was enough to keep me going. <laughs> a few of them got it. And if that doesn't do it, then I just look for something for which to be grateful. Because gratitude is the antidote for fear. That's how we never worry about anything. Because the minute you get a fearful thought, you deal with it and move to gratitude. That's so easy. It's just a choice. Somebody said to me, I have nothing to be grateful for. I said, you've got to be kidding. Did you get breakfast this morning? Well, yeah. Are you grateful for it? Oh, I guess. Get yourself a couple strategies. It's money in the bank. In everything, give thanks. I mean, that's sort of shades of gratitude. 
But here's what thankfulness does. It stabilizes heart rhythm patterns. So instead of your heart being all over the place, the rhythm is very stable. So how do you do that? Well, you look for the gift, the silver lining, and whatever happens. There's always one. You have to dig for it sometimes, but there's always one. If you can learn something from what just happened, sometimes we absolutely don't contribute to it, but if you did, uh, what did you learn, and now what could you do to avoid that happening in the future? Bottom line, there is always something for which to be grateful. I am the proud owner of two titanium replacement hips and happy for them because osteoarthritis runs in my father's family and back in the late 1800s when I was a little girl, they didn't have any hip replacements. So many of my family members died in wheelchairs. Well, I mean, they might have been in bed, but they weren't walking. <laughs> I'm delighted I've got eight pounds of titanium. I just set everything off at the airport before I get out of the car even, and that's not so good these days. But if nothing else, I can be grateful that I didn't have to walk up here with a cane, that I even could walk up the steps. Nobody had to help me. I mean, come on. There's always something for which you can be grateful. Now, this is from the Hearth, Heart Math Institute, and it's showing two patterns of heart rhythm. And so you see on the left when that heart is involved with being appreciative, look at that lovely, smooth, regular heart pattern. And on the right, it's a heart that's in the body of someone who's really frustrated. Okay, which one do you want? And we don't even think about what we think about and its effect on the rest of the body. So absolutely, it aligns. It's the antidote to fear, helps keep the brain upshifted, stabilizes heart rhythms, and promotes congruence. Hmm. What does that mean? You know, when something is congruent, it's matching. It's in harmony. Well, the brain and body work best when everything is matching and in harmony. To the point that if you start thinking fearful thoughts, working memory goes, oh, this is not good. And your hippocampus in that middle layer, which is your search engine, begins to go through all your memories looking for any memory that has anything to do with fear or anxiety because it wants everything to match. And pretty soon you're more fearful and you're more anxious. And that gets an ugly cycle that can be habituating. So the moment you start being grateful and thankful, the brain goes, oh, well, let's see. I'm pretty sure that's happened to us before. Let's, uh, let me look. Start bringing all of the events to memory where you were grateful and thankful. And now brain and body are working in congruence 
and that's how they work best. Number six, study to show yourself approved. That was always a little tricky for me because I couldn't figure out when I was a little girl, what does it mean approved? So when I started thinking about this, I did a little detour to look at what approved means. And I asked the internet, don't you love the research on the internet? I don't have to get dressed, drive to the library, try to find you know, what I'm looking for. You have to be approved to get a passport. Who's got a passport? Okay, lots of you. You had to go through a process. I'm a foreigner, so I had to be interviewed. I was born in Canada, Calgary, Alberta, for that matter, where they have uh, the stampedes. <laughs> have to get approved to get a marriage license. You have to get approved to get a divorce. Sometimes it's harder, much harder to get the divorce than it is the marriage. You have to be approved to adopt a child. You have to be approved to lease a vehicle. I like BMWs really well. I don't expect to ever have one. My brother had one. Boy, I started driving that around and I thought, this is pretty nice. Problem is that he didn't keep it very long because any little thing that went wrong cost half the price of the car to fix. But it was a lovely car. He brought home a, a stack of paper, you know, more than an inch thick, telling him how to take care of the vehicle so that when he turned it back in, there wouldn't be a penalty. And, you know, he was very worried as I was driving. <laughs> so I began to look at health from that perspective We've been leased a brain and body, a living vehicle to use on this planet. No evidence you're going to take it anyplace else with you as it is today. For some of us, that will be good. But how much studying are you doing, learning how to take care of this vehicle? Especially the new science of brain function. It's fine if you read in scripture um, worry about nothing as long as you choose to worry about nothing. But if you gradually forget the importance of that, then you better be studying to understand the reason we were told to do that because it's totally lethal for brain and body. So that aligns. Thomas Alva Edison, I, used to like, I still like to read things that he said, one of them is the chief function of your body is to carry your brain around. And for years, people laughed at that. Not so far off. Not so far off. And of course, Paul says you aren't your own. Well, no, we don't own this brain and body. We're leasing it. So what's the lease agreement? Scripture's full of how to take care of your brain and body, and now we've got the research to tell us the reasons for that. Will the care of your brain and body be approved when time comes to turn it in? 
I think that's a huge question. Mine's going to be much older, just like a car would be older that I've been driving for X number of decades. But is it in the best possible shape it can be for its age? And that's what I'm looking at. And the last one. People are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You know, we blithely repeat these things, and what do they really mean? So when I was thinking about doing this, I thought, okay, people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But look what we know about. And then I thought, okay, let's do a little research here. It doesn't say people perish from lack of information. It says we perish for lack of knowledge. This is the information age. But people are dropping like flies. And not outside of Christianity, necessarily. Christians are dying. Many, many, many of those deaths were preventable. So I started researching the difference between information and knowledge. And my brain has lots of fun with that. And of course, 30 minutes a day of challenging mental exercise is also anti-aging, just like 10 minutes of reading aloud. So I'm, I'm doing quite a bit of that lately. So what did I find? Well, information's a noun. You know, my mother was a school teacher. She was big on whether... Things were nouns or verbs or adjectives or adverbs or dangling participles or all of that stuff. This is a noun. comes from the Latin verb informer, to instruct or to teach. So its definition is that which informs, instructs, teaches, including facts, figures, and data. And then it says and from which knowledge can be derived. So it's pretty clear that information and knowledge are two separate things. So if you use the vehicle metaphor, we just talked about leasing, you can have the facts and the data about the vehicle, how it works, how to take care of it, although <laughs> it's amazing how many people get a new vehicle and throw the owner's manual in the glove compartment and don't look at it until there's a problem, which in many cases could have been prevented. But that's what information is. So what's knowledge? It's also a noun. It comes from Old English, and it denotes action or practice. It's defined, read that second paragraph with me, defined as understanding something through a process developed by learning, by experience or practical application, by evaluating the outcome and determining if it was negative or positive and course correcting as needed. Well, that's about as different from information as night is from day. So back to the vehicle metaphor, you have developed the skills in caring for and operating the vehicle wisely, safely, and appropriately, and are doing it. This is what destroys people, the knowledge part. Heard somebody on the news the other day 
I think I was on an airplane somewhere, and I don't watch a lot of news, but this woman came on talking about lung cancer and the new polio uh, immunization route that some are going that seems to help the body destroy cancer cells. And the interviewer said, um, what do you think contributed to lung cancer? And she goes, well, you know, all my friends were smoking, so when I was 11, I started smoking. Announcer said, have you been oblivious to all the information about smoking and its connection with a variety of different types of diseases? No, she says, no, no, I, I had the information. Preventable, she had the information. She hadn't turned it into knowledge and practically applied and lived it. And unfortunately, that's the human condition. People perish not because they lack the information. They perish because information alone is insufficient. You have to turn it into knowledge and personal, personally apply it. And to do that, you have to know yourself because every brain is different. Every body is different. The information must be turned into practical knowledge that works for your body. And not everything works for everybody in the same way. So Confucius, it is not that I do not know what to do. It is that I do not do what I know. And I'll bet you every one of us in this room has done that at some time in our lives. Well, the Apostle Paul virtually said the same thing. I wonder if he got it from Confucius. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Pass things around. So Paul says, what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Basically the same kind of thing. So that does appear to be the human condition, but that does not mean that we are unable to rise above that, and it is a choice. So you need to be your own sleuth. Learn the information about what constitutes a brain-friendly lifestyle, because through the brain, according to the spirit of prophecy, that's really the only way that the Holy Spirit reaches us is through our brain. So Socrates, and I didn't know him either, said, the unexamined life is not worth living. That's a famous quote. And I thought to myself, is there anything in scripture that sounds anything like that? Well, I found too right off the bat, a man must examine himself. And man was the name given to the new human race, so women, that doesn't exempt you. Examine yourselves. It's important. Ellen G. White says, the very best experience we can gain is to know ourselves brain, bone, and muscle. Okay, that's a good hundred years old. And again, she says, in order to be fitted for translation, the people of God must know themselves. So are you studying? Are you figuring out how your brain and body work best? So that aligns 
Acquiring knowledge, especially that, I call it, elusive self-knowledge. It's easy to look at someone else and tell them what you think they need to do. But to tell yourself what you need to do requires a higher level of knowledge, if you will. It requires awareness, intention, a choice to learn, daily practical application of knowledge using willpower, consistent effort, and ongoing evaluation. And that is what moves you from a position of hanging on, (laughs) barely surviving, to a position of thriving, which will impact every aspect of your health and wellness and longevity and rub off to others. So my brain's opinion is that it is really clear wish I thought of this myself 40 years ago, but I didn't until somebody asked me the question. I believe that scripture and science absolutely align. That scripture tells us what to do. Current brain function research helps us understand the reason for doing it. So study and learn about the brain and body. Every chance you get. Turn that information into knowledge. Turn the knowledge into wisdom as it applies to your body. Use willpower for consistency in daily practical application and in evaluation. Well, that part didn't work so well. Okay, back to the drawing board. How can you course correct? And bottom line, read with me the last paragraph. When you know better, you can do better and live a brain-friendly lifestyle that can help you prosper and be in good health even as your soul also prospers. It's time to get on board. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. Did you get some practical, helpful things from that? Thankfulness, prayer, examining yourselves. So many different practical things from the Bible that help us to let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you for the minds that you've given us. And Lord, we do want to take care of them. We do want to live in the best way possible to be able to function at the highest level possible for the honor and glory of Jesus, because we love you and we want to serve you with our whole lives. Father, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on each of us, that we would not be conformed to this world, but we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds this week. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.